Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta, and we'll be taking you through the June 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Managing Shoulder Injuries in the Emergency Department, Fracture, Dislocation, and Overuse. As with the December issue on lower extremity dislocations, there are quite a few reduction techniques that we're going to cover here. While I'm confident that our auditory descriptions will be outstanding, This is another great episode to have the main article out in front of you to check out some of the key figures. It's also not a terrible idea to at some point check out some videos of the maneuvers. And as always, we'll have a... Before we mention an answer to a CME question, another great reason to pull the issue out if you can. In this episode, we're going to do what EB Medicine does best and really focus on the specific evidence behind the management of each type of injury and reduction technique. Perfect. Let's get going. This month, Richard Pescatore, Director of Clinical Research at Crozer Keystone Health System and Clinical Assistant Professor at the Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine, along with Andrew Nice, Vice Chairman and Associate Professor at Cooper Medical School at Rowan University, reviewed just over 100 articles to come up with their evidence-based recommendations. Their recommendations were then edited by Dr. John Munyak of Maimonides and Mark Silverberg of SUNY Downstate in Kings County Hospital. So shoulder injuries are no small topic to tackle. Shoulder complaints are actually the third largest contributor to workers' comp. Thankfully, much of the treatment is straightforward, especially if you have a basic understanding of the anatomy and common pathologies, both of which we'll do our best to provide shortly. Let's start with the basic shoulder anatomy. The shoulder is composed of three bones, the clavicle, humerus, and scapula, as well as three joints, the sternoclavicular, acromioclavicular, and glenohumeral joint, and the muscles, tendons, bursae, and ligaments. From medial to lateral, first up is the clavicle. The clavicle lies between the sternoclavicular joint and the acromioclavicular joint in close proximity to important vascular structures, including the brachiocephalic vein and the carotid artery medially. The scapula is essentially a floating bone stabilized by muscles and a connection to the clavicle at the AC joint. Continuing laterally, next we have the glenohumeral joint, a ball and socket type joint between the humerus and glenoid fossa stabilized by its associated muscles, cartilage, and ligaments. The rotator cuff consisting of the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, subscapularis, and the teres minor arguably provides the most critical stability to the shoulder. Neurovascularly, the shoulder complex lies in close proximity to the axillary nerve, axillary and posterior humeral circumflex arteries, and subclavian and axillary veins, which will be of particular importance in our discussion of the various injuries and complications. Figure 1 on page 2 and table 1 on page 3 provide a more detailed overview of the anatomy for those that want a deeper pictorial review. Let's get into the differential. Of course, the differential for shoulder pains includes all the MSK causes we'll discuss today, but it also includes pathologies that cause referred pain to the shoulder. Important non-orthopedic causes of shoulder pain include ACS, aortic dissection, diaphragmatic injury, subdiaphragmatic pathologies such as intraperitoneal bleeding, splenic infarction, and gallbladder disease, soster, cervical disc disease, pneumonia, pneumothorax, and PE, malignancy, polymyalgia rheumatica, and septic arthritis. You definitely don't get any style points for calling ACS musculoskeletal pain. Table 2 offers a complete list of classical clinical findings for each of these conditions. Shoulder-specific pre-hospital care begins after assessing for life and limb threatening injuries. After that, patients with clear or likely MSK injuries should be offered ice and analgesia. In one large cohort, pre-hospital analgesia was associated with an improvement in physiologic severity indicators. Not surprising, but an important conclusion nonetheless. Pre-hospital providers should immobilize the injured limb with a sling and swaths to reduce pain and prevent further injury. In those with neurovascular compromise, immediate reduction to anatomic alignment is appropriate. 
Although studies have demonstrated feasibility, the role of pre-hospital reduction of clear anterior glenohumeral dislocations is not clearly defined. For now, the evidence supports standard immobilization and analgesia. And lastly, as for transport destination, consider diversion to centers with on-site orthopedics, especially in cases of potential surgical emergencies. Once in the ED, your history should focus specifically on the mechanism of injury, which can offer huge clues. Clavicle fractures often occur due to falls on an outstretched hand or direct compression from a lateral force. Sternoclavicular injury often occurs due to direct AP force to the medial clavicle. And lastly, acromioclavicular dislocations often occur secondary to a direct blow to the supralateral border of the shoulder. Once you've gathered your history, you can move to the physical. The true detailed shoulder physical should be part of the secondary survey after life and limb threats have been ruled out. Have the patient sit or stand and expose both shoulders to allow for comparison. Begin with inspection, looking for swelling, deformity, wounds, or other skin changes. And there are some classic presentations to take note of. Those with clavicle fractures often sit with their shoulders slumped downward, forward, and inward. Patients with sternoclavicular dislocations often hold their neck flexed forward, tilted ipsilaterally, and rotated away from the injury due to muscle spasms. And even more classic, those with inferior glenohumeral dislocations often present with their hand up. Great point. After inspection, palpate for tenderness and step-off to assess for bony or muscular tenderness and deformity. Pay particular attention to the glenohumeral joint as the shoulder classically loses its roundness once dislocated. To test function, assess both active and passive range of motion. We'll go over a few specific tests in a minute, but first let's talk generally. Those with posterior glenohumeral dislocations often are restricted with respect to external rotation and may have diminished supination of the forearm. Global limitation of both active and passive range of motion with nearly complete loss of external rotation is nearly pathognomonic for frozen shoulder syndrome, whereas weakness when the upper arm is abducted, that's abducted, is often due to rotator cuff injury. Okay, so let's talk about specific exam maneuvers. The NEAR test evaluates the supraspinatist and subacromial bursa by looking for pain with passive forward elevation of the arm. The empty CAN test also evaluates the supraspinatist and subacromial bursa. In the empty CAN test, have the patient hold both arms out in front of them as though they were emptying the contents of a can. Pain with downward force on the hands against resistance is positive. The arm drop test evaluates the supraspinatus and infraspinatus by testing for controlled lowering of the fully abducted arm within the sagittal plane. Failure occurring at 90 degrees abduction, that's abduction again, is concerning for injury to the supraspinatus or infraspinatus. And lastly, we should talk about the O'Brien test, in which pain is provoked from downward resistance against the arm and 90 degrees forward flexion, 15 degree adduction, and full internal rotation. The O'Brien test assesses the acromioclavicular joint. Definitely check out the YouTube links in the bottom of page 6 in Table 3 for a quick video tutorial of each of the tests. They're only a minute or two long, so you can even watch them before you see your next shoulder injury patient to brush up on your physical exam skills. In terms of the neurovascular exam, assess for axillary nerve function by assessing the strength of flexion, extension, and rotation of the shoulder, as well as sensation along the lateral upper arm. Evaluate the median, radial, and ulnar nerves with an assessment of distal strength and sensation. Do note, however, that if you find a palsy... While they need to be closely followed, most are actually transient. For the pulse exam, test both the radial and ulnar arteries as well as cap refill. And while everybody certainly needs a complete exam, pay particular attention in those over 50 as 86% of vascular injuries occur in this population. 
Okay, that rounds out most of the stuff we had to talk about for the exam section. Let's move on to diagnostic studies. First for the shoulder, the American College of Radiology recommends a baseline of three view series of x-rays for those with shoulder injuries, an AP, axillary, and scapular Y view. For soft tissue injuries, while not typically imaged in the ED, MRI is generally regarded as the gold standard. For clavicular injuries, you need a minimum of two views, the standard AP view and a serendipity view. That's going to need a bit of explaining. Uh, I knew you'd ask. A serendipity view is one aimed at 30 to 45 degrees cephalad. With both the AP view and the serendipity view, you have a good opportunity to assess for fracture pattern, degree of displacement, and pneumothorax. Interestingly, the authors also mention that many orthopods believe that a clavicle fracture is enough evidence alone of shoulder trauma to obtain a full shoulder x-ray series, so don't be stingy with your imaging. Check out figure 2 on page 6 to review some normal x-rays that labeled a basic shoulder anatomy. Specialized x-ray views can also be helpful when your physical exam or previously completed x-rays suggest specific injuries. For example, the Grashy view or scapula view should be used to clearly evaluate the scapula, as often scapular fractures are incidental findings on chest or shoulder radiographs. To minimize the risk of missing a posterior dislocation and to adequately estimate the size of any humeral head defects, radiographic evaluation must include Velpo or axillary views. Failure to obtain an axillary view, which is often attributed to patient discomfort, is unacceptable, yet this remains an often cited reason for missing a posterior dislocation. Be sure to check out figure 3 on page 6 for an example of the light bulb sign, which is a classic finding in posterior dislocations. So that's it for x-rays. CT and ultrasound are also worth mentioning. For suspected sternoclavicular joint dislocation, CT is the definitive study. Ultrasound is also gaining traction as a viable modality for diagnosing anterior glenohumeral dislocations. Ultrasound may also be useful as a quick check of reduction success before you go through the trouble of obtaining formal radiographs. Great point. Let's move on to fractures. Clavicular fractures represent a whopping 5% of all fractures presenting to the ED. The clavicle is also the most fractured bone in children. Clavicular fractures can be divided into three types, 1, 2, and 3, corresponding to fractures of the middle, lateral, and medial thirds of the clavicle. Type 1, or medial fractures, are by far the most common, representing nearly 80% of cases. Nearly 97% of clavicular fractures unite with conservative management with either a figure of 8 bandage or an arm sling. There are actually two trials comparing figure of eight versus sling management and a third comparing figure of eight sling and collar and cuff. All found no difference in healing between the different methods. For fractures with skin tenting, fractures in high-functioning athletes, intraarticular fractures, and fractures with greater than 20 millimeters of shortening, operative intervention may be warranted. Recent studies have cited improved outcomes with operative versus conservative management, especially with mid-shaft fractures. Common complications include deformity, non-union, infection, pseudoarthrosis, and traumatic osteoarthritis. Okay, next up we have scapular fractures. These are very uncommon and usually occur in pedestrians struck by vehicles. One study found that 61% occur in this setting. Similar to clavicular fractures, scapular fractures are also divided into types. There are four. Type 1 involves the acromion process, scapular spine, or coracoid process. Type 2 involves the neck. Type 3 are intraarticular fractures, and type 4 fractures involve the body. In the 90% of non-displaced fractures, management is non-operative with sling and swath and ortho follow-up with upright radiographs on a weekly basis for up to three weeks. Even in cases of minimal to moderate displacement, management is often with benign neglect, although that too is trending towards more operative intervention, just like clavicle fractures. Glenohumeral joint disruption, marked displacement, or associated neurovascular injury are all indications for open reduction. Complications of scapular fractures include adhesive capsulitis and rotator cuff dysfunction. And the last fracture to discuss are humeral fractures. 
Proximal humerus fractures occurring proximal to the surgical neck account for more than 75% of fractures in the elderly, often resulting from falls. Humeral fractures are classified according to the near classification. Figure 6 outlines each type, but just know that this system involves both the part of the proximal humerus and the relationship of the fracture segments, and that should be enough. Most humeral fractures are treated conservatively. Minimally and non-displaced fractures are treated with a sling and analgesia. Multiple part fractures require orthopedic consultation for possible OR management. And as with lower extremity dislocations, all fracture dislocations warrant emergent ortho-eval. Interestingly, the evidence supports physical therapy within three days for a chance at a better outcome. In terms of complications from humeral head fractures, avascular necrosis of the humeral head is the most devastating, with rates as high as 90% in four-part fractures and anatomic neck fractures. Although not as drastic, adhesive capsulitis, more on that in a minute, and rotator cuff syndromes are also well-documented complications. So that rounds out fractures. Let's move on to one of my personal favorite ED topics, dislocations and reductions, which are some of the most fun procedures that we do. First up, sternoclavicular dislocations. Uh, I thought we were going to talk about the shoulder. We'll get there in a second, but first we have sternoclavicular dislocations, which are really rare, accounting for less than 1% of total shoulder girdle injuries. Importantly... Posterior sternoclavicular dislocations are true emergencies and require ortho or cardiothoracic consultation immediately. If not available and there are signs of any neurovascular or airway compromise, the ED physician should attempt immediate reduction. Although many reduction techniques exist, most are similar. Have the patient lay supine over a bolster placed between the scapulae. Apply lateral traction and extension force to the shoulder while it's abducted to 90 degrees. This should move the clavicle back into the joint. That sounds borderline barbaric. But also kind of fun. Agreed. But because of all the critical nearby structures, like the airway, many authors advocate for a repeat CT following reduction. Thoracic surgery involvement is also recommended as bleeding complications may require an emergent sternotomy as the only means of controlling hemorrhage. Anterior sternoclavicular dislocations, on the other hand, are simply managed with immobilization with or without reduction. Redislocation occurs in 21 to 96% which begs the question of whether simple closed reduction without ligament reconstruction is sufficient. Moving laterally, the next dislocation to discuss are acromioclavicular or AC joint dislocations. AC dislocations can be broken down into six types, with type 3 being the most common. Type 1 injuries involve a sprain of the acromioclavicular ligament. Type 2 injuries involve a tear of the acromioclavicular ligaments. In type 3 injuries, both acromioclavicular and caracoclavicular ligaments are torn. Type 4 injuries are more extreme and involve a complete dislocation with posterior displacement of the clavicle. Type 5 are the same as type 4 injuries with more soft tissue damage. And lastly, the very rare type 6 dislocation involves inferior displacement of the clavicle. The evidence supports conservative management of types 1 and 2 injuries, but the data is less clear on the others. For type 3 injuries, current evidence supports an initial trial of non-operative management with close ortho follow-up. Types 4, 5, and 6 all require early surgical treatment. Check out figure 8 on page 11 for some great images of the injuries associated with the Rockwood classification scheme for the six types of AC dislocations we just discussed. Alright, so our last dislocation to discuss is, as you mentioned, yours and likely many emergency physicians' favorite dislocation, glenohumeral dislocations. Glenohumeral dislocations are described in relation to the anatomic location of the dislocated humeral head. These would be subclavicular, subglenoid, intrathoracic, and most commonly, subcoracoid. As anterior dislocation is common and the diagnosis can be made clinically, reduction may be attempted prior to radiographs. There are two common bony complications associated with anterior dislocations, the Bankart and Hill-Sachs lesions. 
During an anterior dislocation, the humeral head is pushed anteriorly out of the glenoid socket and in this process can pull part of the capsule and labrum off. When the glenoid rim is fractured, this is called a bony bank heart. Without bony damage, an MRI is required for accurate diagnosis. Once out, the posterior head can collide with the anterior aspect of the glenoid rim, which leads to a compression fracture of the posterior humeral head known as a Hillsax lesion. Current literature estimates Hillsax lesions are found in about 15% of cases. They aren't generally a big deal, as only defects larger than 25% of humeral articular surface require surgical intervention. If these descriptions weren't enough, check out some of the images or video in this month's issue. Once you see the fractures pictorially, you won't ever forget them. Or you can be like Nachi and choose to learn about these fractures firsthand by breaking your shoulder on a resident ski trip. Having a large bank heart and hillsax lesion himself, Nachi is pretty familiar with these injuries. Sad but true. I literally have shoulder pain talking about this. Let's move on. Orthopedic consultation and surgical management is also required in cases of anterior glenohumeral fracture dislocations to avoid avascular necrosis of the humeral head. These are also often complicated by nerve injuries, which occur in about 45% of fracture dislocations. Posterior dislocations make up a really small proportion of the total dislocations, accounting for only 2-5%. to It's not really a great look for ED physicians, but posterior dislocations are missed or delayed up to 79% of the time. Which is why we advocated earlier for a complete three-view series, as a scapular Y-view will help you avoid this diagnostic trap. While anterior dislocations often occur without associated lesions, posterior dislocations are almost always associated with one of the following. A reverse Hillsax lesion, a reverse Bankart lesion, rotator cuff tears, humeral neck fractures, or tuberosity fractures. A CT may be needed following reduction to elucidate which of these lesions is present. Lastly are the even more rare inferior dislocations, which only occur 0.5% of the time due to either hyperabduction of the shoulder or axillary loading on a fully abducted arm. Rotator cuff tears and fractures of the greater tuberosity make up 80% of the complications. Nerve injuries also occur in up to 40% of cases, but they generally resolve without intervention. Love conditions that resolve without intervention. Let's move on to reduction. Although this doesn't get a ding sound, I think it's an extremely important point, so I'll emphasize it. Pulled directly from the article, and I quote, A Cochrane review and meta-analysis demonstrated that intra-articular analgesia permits the same pain control and reduction success as IV agents, while reducing time in the ED, treatment costs, and rates of adverse events. If you aren't attempting intra-articular analgesia, you're missing out big time. And we aren't talking crazy stuff here. Just 10 mLs of 1% Lido is safe and effective, but make sure to avoid epinephrine and preservative-containing preparations to avoid complications. Once appropriate analgesia has been achieved, we can start reducing the shoulder. There are a variety of techniques, and they can be broken down into a few categories. Traction, leverage, and relaxation techniques. Occasionally, more than one method will be required, and in 5-10% to of cases, Reduction won't be accomplished successfully in the ED. Seems kind of high, doesn't it? So you're insinuating that you're awesome at reductions? Maybe. Now the moment we've been building to all episode, which reduction technique is the best? Sadly, there isn't a clear winner here, so we'll run through them all and leave you with the author's anticlimactic conclusion that the best option is the one that provides safe and non-traumatic reduction with minimal analgesic and personnel requirements. The first maneuver is quite simple, and that's the traction-counter-traction maneuver, also known as the Hippocratic Technique. To perform this maneuver, place the patient in 45 degrees of abduction. One person applies firm, steady traction to the arm, while another uses a folded, wrapped sheet under the axilla to provide counter-traction. 
Do note that this has fallen out of favor due to risk of iatrogenic injury and patient discomfort. A modification of the Hippocratic technique is to have the patient hang the injured arm over the back of a chair. While their wrist is held firmly in place by the clinician, have the patient attempt to stand up. Hmm, so having the patient use their own quadriceps to drive their shoulder back in. Interesting idea, but let's go through some other options. The Stimson technique is another traction technique. With the prone position, hang weight off the patient's fully extended arm and allow gravity to release the spasm and help the arm fall back into place. Next up, we have the FAIRIES method, which stands for Fast, Reliable, and Safe Method. In this maneuver, you hold the patient's wrist and apply gentle traction while simultaneously abducting the arm and applying an up and down oscillatory movement until you reach 90 degrees of abduction. At this point, you begin applying external rotation and continue to abduct the arm until reduction is achieved. Next up would be the Coker method, but we're going to skip it here as it's fallen out of favor due to risk of atrogenic injury. So therefore, the next technique is scapular manipulation. This is a technique that is often combined with the Stimson technique. For scapular manipulation, push the inferior tip of the scapula medially while rotating the superior aspect laterally to position the glenoid to accept the displaced humeral head. Certainly a useful maneuver to attempt. Next, we should discuss the Cunningham technique. To perform the Cunningham technique, place the patient in a hardback chair, sitting as upright as possible with relaxed shoulders. Kneel next to the patient and place your wrist over the patient's forearm. Place the patient's hand on your shoulder. Slowly move the patient's arm into full adduction and gently massage the ipsilateral trapezius, deltoid, and biceps in a sequential and deliberate manner. The shoulder will reduce when the spasm has abated. Next, we have the Davos technique. With the patient sitting on a bed, flex the ipsilateral knee as much as possible. Place both hands over the flexed knee and secure them together. Then, while you're sitting on the patient's foot as an anchor, have the patient lean back and slowly roll their shoulders forward to self-reduce with no effort on your part. There's also the external rotation method of Lidlmeyer, as well as a modified forward elevation maneuver of Cooper and Milch, both of which are leverage techniques. For the external rotation of Lidlmeyer, Externally rotate the arm adducted at the shoulder with the elbow flexed. And for the modified Cooper and Milch, AB duct and externally rotate the dislocated arm. Simple enough. Lastly, we have the Sewell method. Massage the muscles of the anterior deltoid and pectoralis while the arm is flexed forward until reduction is achieved. There's a bit more detail that goes into this technique, and you'll have to watch the linked video from the article to really see and understand it. That was a lot, so let me summarize. There are lots of techniques, of which we covered a few here. None have been proven superior to another. Your approach must be patient and provider-specific. Regardless of the technique used, the literature estimates a success rate of about 70-90%. to 90%. And sadly, recurrence rates are as high as 97% by some estimates, with those less than 30 years of age being at the greatest risk. Regardless of the reduction technique used, after reduction, the shoulder needs to be immobilized to prevent dislocation. After checking a post-reduction x-ray, all patients should follow up in one to two weeks with, quote, an overwhelming agreement in the literature for orthopedic referral and shoulder MRI for all young and active patients with first-time traumatic dislocation. This recommendation is born from the previously mentioned recurrence rates. The possibility of operative intervention may prevent redislocation. And remember that those methods we just described are for anterior shoulder dislocations. Inferior and posterior dislocations require a separate approach. For posterior dislocations, first consider the patient's functional status. In the elderly, low-demand patients, those with uncontrolled seizures, those with cognitive impairment, and those with severe comorbidities, 
Conservative management with supervised neglect is appropriate and well-tolerated. And in young patients with humeral impression defects less than 25%, in conjunction with an orthopedic surgeon, close reduction via complete sedation and gentle flexion and adduction under axial traction may be attempted. Afterwards, the patient should be braced in external rotation and abduction for four weeks. So that's it for posterior, but lastly, we still have inferior dislocations. These require a two-step process. First, convert the inferior dislocation to an anterior position, then use any of the reduction techniques we just described. To do this, with axial traction on the abducted humerus, apply posterior to anterior force on the humeral head to disengage it and slide it anterior to the glenoid. So that's it for reduction techniques. We're nearing the end of the episode here with management of overuse syndromes. Patients with shoulder impingement usually complain of pain at night, localizing to the anterolateral acromial area. Patients improve with physical therapy and anti-inflammatory medications. Biceps tendonitis, which presents with either pain with external rotation or abduction, particularly with elbow flexion, or with tenderness at the pectoralis insertion, is treated with anti-inflammatories and a change in daily activities. Steroid injections can be considered, but should not be done in the ED. Next, we have rotator cuff syndromes, which is common to 90% of patients with acute shoulder pain. The pain can usually be provoked with forward elevation of the arm against resistance. Most injuries are due to prolonged microtrauma, resulting in partial or complete tendon rupture. Management is with rest, physical therapy, and NSAIDs, along with referral to an orthopedist. Adhesive capsulitis, or frozen shoulder, is related to synovitis and progressive contracture of the shoulder. Patients typically present with the arm in adduction and internal rotation, perhaps with shoulder muscle atrophy. On exam, they can have diffuse tenderness and global restriction of the shoulder joint. Frozen shoulder is best treated with an intraarticular injection and a referral for physiotherapy. So to summarize that section, for overuse syndromes, NSAIDs are the way to go with the exception of frozen shoulder, which would benefit from intraarticular steroids. Exactly, and only a few controversies and cutting-edge techniques to discuss on this episode. First up, we have anterior shoulder dislocations before x-ray. In one small study, in patients with clear glenohumeral dislocations, pre-reduction x-rays increase dislocation management by 30 minutes. Consider reduction prior to radiographs in clear-cut cases or put your bedside ultrasound skills to work, as two studies have found nearly 100% sensitivity and specificity for glenohumeral dislocations using ultrasound. It seems like ultrasound almost always makes it into these sections. I guess that's not too much of a surprise, though. There are also a few pharmacologic controversies to mention. First off, consider intraarticular steroids for both acute and chronic shoulder pain to reduce pain and increase mobility as this is supported by at least one systematic review. And to prevent opioid abuse and help in the public health issues, remember to try intraarticular lidocaine for pain control as an alternate to opiates. And lastly, consider an ultrasound-guided interscalene nerve block to anesthetize the entire shoulder via the suprascapular nerve. Even though this only technically provides a few hours of relief, one meta-analysis of almost 600 patients showed better pain relief and functional improvement for at least four weeks versus physical therapy and placebo for patients with chronic pain. Perfect. So let's finish this episode out with some key points and clinical pearls. Imaging for a clavicle fracture should consist of a minimum of two views, an AP view and a serendipity view. The serendipity view is aimed 30 to 45 degrees cephalad. While most clavicular fractures are treated conservatively, there is a recent trend towards operative intervention, especially for mid-shaft fractures due to improved functional outcomes. Scapular fractures, even moderately displaced ones, are often managed conservatively. There has been a trend towards more operative fixation. Humeral fractures are classified by the NEAR classification scheme. Non-displaced and minimally displaced fractures are treated non-operatively. Avascular necrosis of the humeral head is the most devastating complication of humeral head and neck fractures. 
Following reduction of a posterior sternoclavicular dislocation, repeat CT may be warranted to assess important surrounding structures. Rockwood type 1 and 2 AC dislocations are managed non-operatively, whereas types 4, 5, and 6 should be managed surgically. Bankart and Hill Sachs lesions are both commonly associated with anterior glenohumeral dislocations. Posterior dislocations rarely occur in isolation. They often occur with bony or soft tissue injuries. Reduction is typically achieved with complete sedation and gentle manipulation. To reduce an inferior dislocation, first convert it to an anterior dislocation and then reduce it via traditional methods. Following reduction, all patients should have their shoulder immobilized and should follow up with an orthopedist, especially in young patients who are at elevated risk for recurrence. Overuse syndromes and soft tissue injuries are typically amenable to NSAIDs and physical therapy. Frozen shoulders should be treated with intraarticular steroids. Intraarticular lidocaine is recommended for pain control for shoulder injuries. This reduces the need for procedural sedation or opiate use and also shortens time to disposition. Avoid epinephrine or preservative-containing preparations. When a shoulder fracture or dislocation is suspected, a three-view x-ray is warranted, including the AP, axillary, and scapular Y-views. Posterior sternoclavicular joint dislocations are a true emergency requiring orthopedic or cardiothoracic consultation. If there is a delay to consultant arrival, the emergency physician should attempt reduction immediately. For anterior shoulder dislocations, no one method of reduction has been proven to be superior. Consider a relaxation technique first, as these have little to no risk. Often a combination of methods will be needed. Redislocation is exceedingly common. So that wraps up the June 2018 episode of Amplify. We're mere weeks away from the clinical decision-making conference at June 21st to June 24th. Hopefully you're going or can get some last-minute time off for a trip. And if you can't make it out to Ponte Vedra, you can follow us on Twitter at EB Medicine for live updates from the conference. For those of you looking for CME, the address for this month's credit is ebmedicine.net slash E0618. So head over there right away to get the credit you deserve. Talk to you all next month.